So I want to begin our time together today with a quiz and a self-assessment. Um, I won't make you raise your hand or stand up or like say I, um, because as you'll see, some of these might be a little close to the vest. Um, but just we'll just begin, and maybe you can nod or mm, if it hits you. Um, so when asked the question, how are you doing, a regular reply of mine is busy. Anybody? Okay, just a few of you. Um, I have a hard time giving my attention to one thing, one task, or even one purpose, one, one task or person at a time. Um, I get bored easily. Like 39% of Americans, I find myself getting more anxious year over year. Um, I'm, I'm quite restless. I tend to rock my leg um, a lot. Um, when I go to bed at night, I'm tossing and turning for quite some time before I do fall asleep. I feel disconnected from my identity and calling. Often I feel like a ship getting tossed from various urgent reactive thing to urgent reactive thing. I feel busied and hurried, but not busy in what I feel like I'm truly made for. I don't feel like I'm busy in what matters. I often feel physically off, tired, sluggish. I crave large amounts of caffeine and sugar or nicotine to get me through the day and then process carbs, fried food, and alcohol to help me come down at night. No one else? Okay. I get sick multiple times a year. I feel enslaved, addicted to this chiming, dinging, vibrating piece of glass, plastic, and metal in my pocket. I crave intimacy with people, but I'm unable to produce the emotional presence needed to receive that intimacy. I have a short wick. It's surprisingly easy for me to get angry, whether that's loud blow-ups or internal seething resentment. Anybody put together Ikea furniture recently? <laughs> from my own life. I regularly fill my nights with one of the following. Overeating, overdrinking, binging shows, long bouts of just social media, scrolling purposelessly, purposelessly, that's not a word. Uh, online shopping, uh, gaming late into the night, aimless web surfing, looking at porn. I find myself stuck in a negative feedback loop of socially acceptable addictions. I feel burnt out. For those of you that are Christians, I, I feel there's more to the Christian life than I experience, but practically not much of my life has changed. I read the transformation of people in the Bible and it feels like distant galaxies in the night sky. They're visible but inaccessible to me. I find it hard to find patience that's required to love and the attention that's needed to listen well. I often feel disconnected from creation disconnected from others, disconnected from myself, and disconnected from God. So how'd you do? <laughs> now, I don't bring this test to you as uh, some kind of mountaintop experience that I don't uh, go through any of these things on a regular basis for myself um, and haven't over the years. I mean, who hasn't binged uh, late into the night, um, right? Stranger Things, like it's an event in our house. We have like Stranger Wings and we watch the first episode where everybody brings weird wings, right? And then you watch through the episode. <laughs> That's free. You guys can do that uh, when it comes out again. Oh, speaking of which, Hopper's Alive. Have you guys seen this? Some of you know what's going on. Um, some of you are just like freaking out right now. Um, but it was, it's, it's thing. It's canon. Um, how many of you um, haven't uh, laid in your bed, unable to fall asleep, and just scrolling through the Explore page on Instagram, and then in like a fugue state, and just endlessly, and then you kind of like look at your alarm clock, and you're like, oh my gosh, where did my night, where, that was my sleep time, and it's gone now, right? 
I, I don't think I'm alone in this. Some of you are looking at me and you're like, you're, you're feeling this with me. Some of you are lying. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it just, I, I can go on list of things where we haven't um, gone through this. Many of us, this, this shared reality of coming home to finding our front door once again uh, barricaded by Amazon Prime boxes and sleeves because we stayed up way too late buying things that we don't need from Amazon. And though the thing is, is that maybe you don't agree with all of these. The odds are there was a handful of these that stuck out to you. That as we read through them, there was some resonance. And the reality is, is that as we walk through these, these aren't the sort of things that you want in your life. And yet you resonate with them. The reality is that on the whole, many of these ring true for all of us. There's a saying, uh, a leadership principle, that says your system is perfectly designed to get you the results you're currently getting. Your system what you're doing and how you're going about it is perfectly designed to get you the results that you're currently getting. And so if, if we resonated with many of those things that we just read through, the question is, that's coming from some system. That's not just existing out of a vacuum. And so what is the sort of system that's bringing these felt realities for both those of us that identify as Christians and those that don't? We could simply break it down this way. The system that we walk in is that 80% of us, smartphone users, which is almost all of us in the room, 80% of smartphone users uh, check their phones within 15 minutes of waking up. 80%, 15 minutes, phone's the first thing that I look at. And the large percentage of that is even breaks down into um, all of it is social media. Um, and Snapchat takes the, uh, the, the, the lion's share. Good job? Or maybe not. I don't know. That's not your fault. That's not on you. Um, <laughs> don't look at her. I didn't mean to do that. Um, uh, 70% of young adults, um, that's Gen Z all the way up into um, um, mid-millennial uh, range, um, when they say when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I go to is my phone. So the moment that nothing is right in front of me, the first thing that comes out is this. Uh, the average smartphone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day, which breaks up into two and a half hours over 76 sessions. Uh, millennials, hi, how are we? Uh, we're double that, almost 4,000 uh, times a day. Uh, we spend 705 hours a year on our phone, um, which is insane. That sounds like a lot. And then you hear that we spend 2,737 hours of TV a year, which is 114 days. Um, we spend over a third of our life um, looking at a television. And the thing is, is uh, for those of us that live here in Los Angeles, we're kind of at ground zero. Uh, many of us work for companies that were putting out apps or shows or movies or documentaries or advertisements. Um, and, and we find ourselves as both receiving and playing some part in the unsustainable pace of content that's coming at us. Uh, we become like human foie gras uh, with a feeding tube, not of corn, but of content that's constantly craving our attention to get fattened up uh, because we live in this attention economy. As Neil Postman wrote, we are amusing or entertaining ourselves to death. Now, I am not anti-tech. I'm not anti-phone. I was in Portland this week, and it was awesome. I had my boarding pass on my phone, right? I didn't have to go and check anything out and print it up. Um, I, had, I had music and podcasts downloaded while I was sitting on the plane that I was able to work. I was able to work on my sermon while I was going, you know, hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of feet up in the air. I'm not anti-tech. I got off, and I was able to call for a lift that took me into the city of Portland where on my phone I had an Airbnb that I had booked, right? I was paying for things with this. I was FaceTiming with my wife and daughter while I was gone. Not anti-tech by any stretch of the imagination. But it seems 
But it seems to me, and, I, and I don't, I'm not alone in this, that many of the habits we've unconsciously adopted over the past 13 years, 2007 when the iPhone came out, that many of these habits are not beneficial to us. The reason being because at the end of the day, what you give your attention to is the person that you become. What you give your attention to is the person that you become. And for the past 20 years, our attention span has been dropping year over year. Depending on the research, some would put it at, depending on the type of task that we're doing, uh, anywhere between eight minutes to eight seconds. Um, Those that call eight seconds are on the critical side, um, and they would say that um, now we're being beat by goldfish who have an attention span of nine seconds. So somewhere between, depending, and, and the reason why the test differs between eight minutes to eight seconds is because of the type of tests and projects that are at hand. But all tests agree that since 2007, humans, specifically in the West, smartphone users, our attention span is dropping year over year. This is all due to what Microsoft researcher Linda Stone says, where we all now live with continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention. And if our attention is linked to who we become, then it's no wonder that after living 13 years with continuous partial attention that we now feel like continuous partial souls. Never stopping, incomplete souls. And at a level even deeper than that, more than just becoming what our attention has shifted on, as Mary Oliver, the uh, poet and spiritual seeker, not a Christian by any stretch, but she wrote that attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And so all of this, what I've just gone through, which seems like kind of a, a scary dystopian future that we're now living, um, I, I, just, I just bring all this to say, this has huge implications on things like evangelism, people becoming Christians, has huge implications on discipleship, people moving more into the direction of Christ-likeness. You see, one of the greatest obstacles for my neighbors and my friends and people in this city to become Christians is first and foremost getting people to stop and slow down and ask, what do I actually believe and why? You see, the thing is, as we go into work and we're expecting to have conversations with friends or some of you that are here right now and you don't identify with a Christian, is so many Christians want to come and have a conversation about, you know, I want to invite you to follow Jesus. And, and this is coming from a generation that we can't even sit on a toilet by ourselves in silence for a second and just think right? We, we, we can't sit at a stoplight for, for what? A minute without Spotify. Got to change the music. We can't be alone with our thoughts. And so we expect someone to reconsider what they think about history and the world and reality and creation and the afterlife. And we, we don't even have the time for that. Similarly, Christian discipleship. Those of us here that identify as a Christian, one of the greatest things that I believe is getting in the way of us becoming more like Jesus on a regular basis is the fact that our attention is set on everything and we're constantly going and never have a time to consider who is Jesus and what does it mean for his personality to come out of mine. All of this leads to this scary place where we read Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says this, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, many of us trying to follow Jesus in this modern age with everything that's going on for these past 13 years, we read Jesus' words in Matthew 11 and we think he's bluffing. We think it's like hyperbole or like metaphor, right? 
come to me and I will give you rest. And, and I, I, I feel like I'm doing this Jesus thing and I'm not finding any of it. And so maybe Jesus was, was, maybe this was kind of bait and switch. Like he's holding out rest for us, but he really just wants us, you know, you know our butts to be in seats on Sundays, right? I, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. That, that on a regular basis, whenever I read this passage, I, I go, is Jesus honestly holding out some kind of hope for rest here? Or is he bluffing? It began to change for me um, through a, a whole handful of conversations and, and different people, but one of them that summarizes it well is um, Dallas Willard. Uh, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, where he writes this. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our lives with and around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly attentive, that is, attention language, to the fellowship of the Father. What activities did Jesus practice? Such things as silence and solitude, prayer, simple and sacrificial living, study and meditation upon God's word and God's ways and service to others. So, if we wish to follow Jesus Christ, we will have to accept his overall way of life as our way of life totally. Then and only then, we may reasonably expect to know and experience how easy is the yoke and how light the burden is. You see, the thing that we don't do is we want Jesus to come and, and give us rest and we feel like he's bluffing when we don't even read his words there where he says, take my, my yoke upon me, learn from me. Not just simply in doctrine and I'm, I will be the guy that will argue over the beauty of justification and salvation and the work of the cross and what Jesus has done, but that learn from me goes far deeper than that. Where he's inviting us into a sort of way where the peace that he's offering for us is not just something that's awaiting us on the other side of death. Beginning today, we're gonna to be looking at one particular practice of Jesus, one of many spirit-led systems that Jesus himself embodied, which as we'll see, leads to spirit-empowered results. And in light of what we've seen over the past few minutes, why well, we desperately need to recapture this practice today. And so we're gonna pray really quick and then we'll jump into Mark's gospel. Sound good? Okay. Father, um, I, I just acknowledge the weight <laughs> of uh, of just reality, how it, how it smacks us in the face, that um, oftentimes uh, the rhythms and the ways that we live, the systems that we operate within, uh, we can become um, blind to them simply because they're habits. And we don't realize um, how much they're keeping us from you. And so I just pray that you would lead us to see Jesus, God, not simply as Savior, but as much more than that, as the sort of person who wants to save us through his spirit, empowering our lives as we find ways to be receptive to his presence. And so we pray that as we look at the life of Jesus, this one little account in Mark's gospel, that today you would help us. Help us to receive this from Jesus once again. Would you be with us, we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 35 today, if you have your Bibles. Um, if not, um, they'll be behind me on the slide. You can just follow along. We're just going to go a verse or two at a time and bring out some of uh, what, what this story is telling us here, what Mark's pointing to us. Mark 1, beginning in verse 35, writes, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, being Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
If you'll remember from last week, this little passage that we're going to look at today happens right in between him um, casting out an unclean spirit and then healing Simon's mother-in-law. And then next week, he's going to be uh, healing a person with leprosy. And right here in the middle of it, we read that Jesus gets away and he goes to this desolate place. That word desolate can be translated as deserted, can be translated as wilderness, can be translated as the lonely place, or my favorite, as the quiet place. And see, what we see is that Jesus takes this intentional time to go to a place of prayer that's away from everyone else. And the crazy thing is when we read this with Jesus is, is for many of us, we don't know this, but Jesus is just continuing in a tradition and a practice that uh, him as a, as a Jewish man uh, had been receiving from generations of those that had gone before him. You see, as you go back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis is almost defined and guided by varying moments of individuals who are alone with God. Alone with God to receive promises from him or alone with God to wrestle through those promises. As you continue into the book of Exodus, uh, God saves his people out of slavery in Egypt and then spends 40 years in the wilderness with them before going into the promised land. Moses, in this Exodus time, would regularly go out to, he set up this tent of meeting. It was like his little place that Exodus tells us he would go to be with just God and he would talk to him like a friend talks to a friend. There's more and more examples, but just to, to zoom through them, 1 Kings recounts that the prophet Elijah went on this like silent retreat with God at Mount Horeb. The book of Psalms regularly sing and the prophets repeatedly praise the practice of waiting specifically each morning and evening for God in silence and stillness and solitude or the word that the Psalms use is meditating. And so Jesus is just continuing this practice that he's seen throughout the Old Testament story. And as we see Jesus practicing it, it goes on into the early church. The apostle Peter in the book of Acts regularly gets away for solitude and silence and prayer. And some of the most decisive moments in the book of Acts happen as Peter is away alone with God. Paul, after becoming a Christian, spends three years in silence and just alone with God before he starts his ministry. John writes the craziest book in the Bible, Revelation, while he's exiled alone, silence and solitude on the island of Patmos. You see, it's a biblical practice that Jesus himself here is just entering into. And so what, I, what we mean by this is that Jesus is embodying this, and this isn't just only in Mark, but it's in all four gospel accounts. If you read the gospel of John, uh, he dedicates whole chapters to talking about Jesus' prayers alone with the Father. Matthew repeatedly tells us Jesus left them to go pray. Luke nine times describes Jesus as going to the desolate, the quiet place for prayer. In 5.16, he puts it plainly. Luke just says, Jesus often withdrew to the desolate, to the quiet place to pray. You see, Jesus has this rhythm of regularly going away from the, the pulls and the compulsivity and the demands of the people around him to be alone with God. Mark does it in this really cool way that we're gonna be looking at over the next three weeks. Instead of saying it nine times or giving whole chapters to it, Mark gives us three instances where Jesus goes away to be with the Father alone to pray. It happens at the beginning of his ministry, in the middle of his ministry, and at the end. It's kind of this little way that he... Um, uh, bookends, the whole ministry of Jesus is by these three times that he gets away for silence and solitude. And so we're gonna be looking at those three and actually developing a working kind of basic definition of this practice, which over the past 2,000 years has been referred to as silence and solitude among other things. And this is our definition of what we see in these next three weeks. 
Silence and solitude is intentional, quiet time alone with God and our own souls. And it is this intentional space that we make to renew, to rest, and to relinquish. To renew, to rest, and relinquish. Today we'll be looking at renew, next week rest, next week relinquish, as each of these three stories that Mark gives us brings out each of these three things. We're going to spend a week on each of these. Now, this might be strange for some of you who have maybe grown up in the church and this is the first time you're hearing of this practice. And that's for a whole mess of problems and issues we don't have time to get into today. But I would just say, if this is strange to you or unaware, this is just an invitation for our church. Three weeks of just leaning into this and practicing this. And I would just invite you to just try this for three weeks. That this has been seen within the scriptures, practiced throughout church history, and just to try this for three weeks and just see what God does in this time to test drive it, as it were. Because the thing is, is silence and solitude, like all spiritual practices or habits, are simply the ways that the people of God have found most helpful in setting our attention to God. There's nothing inherently special about silence and solitude. You see, uh, John H. Coe, he's a professor at Biola. Sam Reed um, posted this quote on Instagram this week, so there's a benefit of social media. Uh, This is the quote that she posted. It's so good. Uh, Spiritual disciplines do not transform they only become relational opportunities to open the heart to the spirit that should be uh, uh, capitalized, the spirit who transforms. So in in and of the the spirit of silence, there's benefit like neurologically to giving yourself silence. The Christian perspective is that this is a benefit like fasting, like prayer, not in and of itself, but because of of it's a way of setting our posture to receive from the God who wants to give. And this is the difference between Christian um, meditation or silence and solitude, whatever language we want to use, and a Buddhist practice or, you know, Santa Monica and headspace, their, their mindfulness, uh, secular meditation. You see, there are many religious and non-religious systems that praise the benefits of silence. Where Christian practice differs on this is that we see meditation not simply as a process of emptying ourselves, of just simply quieting ourselves for the sake of quieting ourselves, but specifically emptying and quieting ourselves so that we might hear, so that we might receive and be filled. We empty so that we can be filled. We silent ourselves so that we can hear. The image that came to mind is like a um, camera back in the day before you just like held the button down a little bit without taking the picture and it would focus for you. You had to manually move the lens. Some of my photographers here. You had to manually move the lens to focus in on what the subject was. Christian meditation and silence and solitude is the process of setting our our camera directed at God, as it were, and taking the time to focus on a regular basis. And whereas, you know, mindfulness meditation or Buddhism gets all excited about just turning, you know, the lens, the Christian practice is, the idea is that we're focusing on a specific subject and that subject is God. And it is the Spirit himself who empowers us as we seek to focus on him. And so the reality is, is it's so sad that this is something that's so foreign to so many of us because um, the, this is a long-standing biblical tradition in practice. And, and for whatever reason, whether it's just that we don't want to be Buddhist or something like that, that we don't do this. But the thing is, is that within Jewish tradition, it predates Buddhism as a practice. We had this before them, you could argue. And so I, I'm just setting all this up as an invitation for us as a community, because I've, I've, in a moment we'll talk about that, but we just found this to be so beneficial. Let's keep going. Let's, if you don't believe me yet, let's keep reading. Let's see how this is beneficial for Jesus. Look in verse 36 and 37 where it continues. And it says that Simon 
Simon Peter and those who were with him, the other disciples of Jesus, they searched him out. He's out in the solitude in the lonely place praying and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And it's not just like, hey, everyone's looking for you. It's everyone is looking for you. If you imagine this being in Jesus, you know, he's in our day and age. This is, um, you know, the disciples come and find Jesus and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Everyone's looking for you. Hashtag Jesus is trending, right? Like on Twitter, it's blowing up. People, there's the selfies of like healed people, you know? Like there's the leper that's like this with Jesus, right? Those are blowing up. Everybody can't believe it. The local news wants to talk to you. There's a documentary series. There's podcast interviews. Emails are coming in. Oprah wants to talk to you. Oprah, right? And Jesus is up on like a silent hike. You see, the thing is, is Simon isn't bringing up these bad things. These are not bad things that people are looking for him. And yet Jesus is, is displaying this distance from it, and as we'll see, so that he can come back into it. And so simply the question is, as we talk through silence and solitude in this, this practice, is what are the reasons that people are searching for you? What is that call that when you hear everyone is looking for you? The thing that you might need to get away from in order to be present with God. As we saw for Jesus, the reason why he went out into the wilderness, went to the lonely place, was because everyone was going to be looking for him. He knew that. He healed half the town last night. He knows if I'm going to get a lick of silence and just time alone with God, you know, they're going to be knocking on my bedroom door before I can wake up. And so he wakes up before them and gets away. It may not be crowds for you, but it may be toddlers. It may be emails and texts. It may be work. It may be ministry, it may be slack, it may be whatever it may be that is calling for you. And, and to go back, again, I'm not anti-tech, but, but, but there's obviously some broken habits that we have here because for many of us, you know, it's not Simon the Peter who's knocking on our doors in the morning. It's this little thing sitting next to our bedside table that's yelling at us before we wake up. Everyone's looking for you. And so for Jesus, he displays this ability, this priority of getting away. But why does Jesus get away? Let's keep reading. What does Jesus say to them? Let us go on to the next town, then I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. You see, Peter comes, Simon comes with the demand. This is what everybody's looking for, and it's a good thing. Everyone's looking for you. There's more people to heal. There's more gospel to preach. There's more lepers that want to be healed. Simon Peter's mom is sick again, I guess. Like, you got to heal her again. This is, this is, none of these are bad things, and yet Jesus responds with this crystal clear vision for who he is, why, he, why he's here, and what's next for him. After abiding in the presence of the Father, spending this time with him, he emerged renewed and enabled to now speak with absolute clarity and conviction of his identity, his purpose, and mission. Where are we going from now? It's not where does the crowd want to go. Jesus knows now it's no longer just Capernaum. We've been doing ministry in Capernaum. Now it's to the outlands of, of, of all of Galilee, all of this region. How does Jesus know when it's time for his ministry to change, for something new to happen, for him to move, as it were? It's out of a deep connection to the Father. This also is, is changing not just where he's called, but to who he's called. He is crystal clear. I, I was here for Capernaum, but now God's calling my attention to be on all of Galilee. He knows what he's there to do from the bottom of his soul. He's, he's here to keep continuing to proclaim the kingdom of God, to preach this good news and to have it be preached with these miracles and this power. And that's what we're gonna see. 
And all of these options that set before Jesus, I mean, he's gonna continue doing this. But I mean, in Luke's gospel, he, he adds a note on this part where he says that the crowds were looking for him specifically because they wanted to keep him in Capernaum. How great is that for the tourism business, right? Come on down. We're right on the Sea of Galilee. You know, eat at Joe's Crab Shack. Well, you couldn't do that. But, uh, and then Jesus is right here. And, he, and he's healing everybody left and right. We've, he's the prophet of Capernaum, the healer of Capernaum. In John's gospel, in a similar thing, it's not so much the prophet thing, but it's the political angle. People see Jesus and they want to make him, force him to be king. Jesus is convinced, I know those are not the things that I'm called to do. I know who I am. And he knows why he's here. He has laser-focused vision. That's why I'm here, to preach. I'm here to preach the kingdom. I know who I am. I know I am here. And the fact that Jesus expresses this conviction here in verse 38, it's, it's, it seems to point, and it's, just, it's an, an obvious reading. This comes out of his time alone with the Father. Silence and solitude is the space that God invites you and me to find renewal for our souls, fresh strength, fresh life, fresh vision, where we establish the calling of who I am, where I am, what I'm supposed to do, why I'm here, who I'm called to love, and in what way. I, I, I don't know, I'll just, this is the thing. The reality is, is that so many of you may feel exhausted and burnt out, not because you're doing bad things, but because you're doing good things. And what you need to do is get away and, and have consensus and conviction on what the right thing is for you. Like what God has called you to do and you alone. I was talking with um, April and Lorenzo earlier this week in a staff meeting that in Los Angeles, we not only have FOMO, like fear of missing out, we have FOBO, fear of better offer. So we're like, oh, Wow. <laughs> I felt that April gets a pay raise for that. Uh, <laughs> that we have a fear of better offer. And so what's going underneath that is because of the fact that we, we just, we don't know what's best for us or what's gonna be the best thing to be at, the best party or the best event or the best. And so we just kind of keep all of our options open because we don't know what to say yes to. And the reality is, is that we end up saying maybe to everybody. And so we have like poor relationships with friends because we never show up for anything. And the whole time is because we don't know what to say yes to. And it's the compulsive rhythms of life that keep us from being able to stop and ask the questions, who am I? What am I called to? What am I meant to do? And we, we just, I, the thing is, is, we get easily distracted and overly busy and anxious because we keep saying yes to everything, hoping we don't say no to the right thing. And so what we believe is that the right thing, the, the renewed, the vision and mission for my life that I'm looking for is something that I have to achieve and go out and find. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out my net as wide as I can and I'm gonna be a mile wide and an inch deep with my relationships, with my convictions, with my responsibilities because I don't know what's purely mine and what God's called me to do. And so just personally, I mean, I've found this to be true time and time again as a place of renewal not only in helping me know what my conviction is and what God's calling me specifically to, but even finding the ability to get through difficult seasons. Uh, the fall of 2018 into the spring of uh, 2019 was probably one of the hardest seasons of, of ministry for us. Um, and, and we, 
just had to make regular time for something like this. And so I remember right towards the beginning of it, I got a sense that something was just gonna be a messy season and I got, I got away. I, t- I told Aaron, I was like, okay, I'm gonna help figure out babysitter. I need to get away for a night and like get my head straight about what this next season is gonna come through. And, I, and I'm convinced that I would not have made it through that season of life if I wouldn't have done that. And having a clear conviction from God of what he was calling me to in this next season. As we came out of that season, it was clear that we were making the move and the transition to kind of being down here with you guys and asking those questions. I, I don't think we would have had the energy and the ability and the conviction to do that if Aaron and I wouldn't have gotten, gotten away. For silent retreat, it wasn't like, you know, romantic vacation. <laughs> like we're going up into the mountains. It was literally like we're going to pray and ask God what he wants us to do to listen to his voice. Us deciding whether or not, like I'm all, I feel like in my heart of hearts, West Coast, Erin, my wife, she had to work through that. It was her doing like a week and a half of quiet time by herself, just listening to God for her to find the conviction of where she was called. And so there's some of us that we're running around, jumping from thing to thing, and, and God's just inviting you. Maybe he has the answer waiting for you if you just stop running long enough, stop talking long enough to listen. And I don't say that as like Ryan's got like, I'm woo, the silence and solitude guy. Like on a weekly basis, I am sporadic with this at best. I have a toddler. Like it says, I have to like, even when I like wake up early, she still beats me somehow. Like I get my coffee and I'm like, all right, here we go. I get in my chair and she's like waiting for me. <laughs> and so I get that. I'm not, I'm not painting some ideal of this. But I am just saying that we, we um, there's an invitation in Jesus's life here to find the thing that maybe your soul is looking for most, a sense of renewal, a sense of conviction about who you are and what God's called you to. And that's the thing that we see with Jesus. He's got no, no phobo, <laughs> no fear of better offer. Where the crowds come and Jesus is kind of like, I don't know, yeah, we'll go down to Capernaum, we'll see what happens, you know. I don't know, like I'll heal people as we go. Jesus comes, he emerges time with the Father, he goes, I know exactly what I'm here for and what I'm supposed to do. And so for those of us here, for the next three weeks, we're going to invite all of us just to take a step into patterns of intentionally setting our attention to hear from God. And that can be as simple as a starting point in you joining us for the prayer night this evening, where, where we begin that time with just some silence, just to listen, and then out of that listening, begin to pray for one another, begin to pray for our city. We listen and then we talk like Moses. We talk to God like he's a friend where we listen and we talk. You know what a bad friend is? <laughs> Someone who talks all the time and never listens. I think some of us need to listen to God a little bit more. And then if you're in a discipleship group, these discipleship groups, and through that guide, for those of you that take that, we're gonna be leaning into this, this practice because the reality is, is that for so many of us, we keep trying to become like Jesus. We keep trying to do the things that Jesus did. We keep trying to do the, the be the good Christian person. And at most, what our relationship to Jesus looks like is maybe showing up on Sunday and then trying really, really hard the rest of the week. Maybe if we're lucky, discipleship group. But more of that is just us trying really, really hard. And the reality is, is that Jesus is inviting us into these rhythms and ways of resting and listening and just being still with God, acknowledging that this whole faith thing is not something that you do. It's kind of something that you just receive and walk in. And so our final verse, as we begin to land the plane, verse 39, where now Jesus, out of this conviction, says, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
After understanding who Jesus was, where he was called to go, and what he was called to do, and why he was called to do it, he was ready to go out and do it. And that's the final point behind this rhythm of renewal, is Jesus shows us a way that is neither asceticism or activism. Jesus doesn't show this asceticism where he goes out into the wilderness and he stays out there, right? He's not building some kind of like weird commune or having this like ancient, you know, Jewish burning man. Like he's like, we're all gonna come out here and like, no to society. Like the kingdom of God is, you know, everybody come out here. Jesus doesn't set up this asceticism where he only exists out in the wilderness. Similarly, Jesus isn't an activist, What I mean by that is he is neither constantly going. He's not being tossed to and fro by the rhythms and demands of the world of what the new blow up is that everybody's angry about on ancient, you know, Twitter. Even in Mark's gospel, this is the action-packed gospel where he regularly, not regularly, 41 times in this little gospel uses the word immediately and has more actions of Jesus than any other gospel. It's thing to thing to thing. Even in the action-packed gospel, Mark includes these moments where Jesus gets away from activity to be still and be with the Father. And so for some of us here, the question is, is do I fall into one of these two traps, asceticism or activism? Maybe it's not a spiritual asceticism where you're, you know, moving out to start a cult up in the hills, but maybe it's a cultural or a vocational asceticism, a laziness or an apathy with your life, where because you feel disconnected from who you are and what you're meant to be, who God's called you and who God wants to be within you and through you, you've just found it easier to disengage from the life that you have. You kind of do what you need to kind of hit cruise control, pay the bills, you know, make sure the house doesn't burn down and the kids don't die. But really, outside of that, it's really just unhealthy patterns to fill the time. You know, part of the reason why you might feel enslaved to your phone or binging show after show each week where we're going through seasons in a weekend, and, or maybe you feel enslaved to work and you're, you're constantly checking in on email or Slack or whatever it might be, or addicted to some substance or just entertainment, whatever it might be, some of these things may be simply because of the fact that you don't want to and will do anything to to not have to come face to face with the reality that you don't know who you are. So it's much easier to, you know, pretend to be Master Chief. I know that's like outdated, but (laughs) Crash Bandicoot was the other one. (laughs) Like, you know, anybody? PlayStation? Thank you. Or the reason why we sit in front of our phones constantly is like as long as I don't have to sit at the stoplight and think about who I am and what I'm giving my life to and realize, uh (laughs) uh-oh, And have, a, and have that existential crisis, I'll just keep looking at funny cat videos. <laughs> Similarly, for some of us, our, our, our fall off is not into the asceticism of, of apathy, but activism. And maybe it's not an activism with sermons and exorcisms like Jesus, but you are constantly running around from relationship to relationship, from thing to thing, from task with work to task to work, from your family thing to family thing, from you trying to do some dead religious right to get Jesus to love you to dead religious right to get Jesus to love you. You are constantly shifting your attention to the next thing, the next moment, the next whatever it might be so that I can find some moment of feeling like I have my identity and then it's gone. Some Amazon purchase where now I've got you know, the shoes that I want. Now I've got the clothes that make me feel the part. I've got the job that I was looking for. I've got the promotion. I've got the relationship. I've got the house. I've got the car. Whatever it might be for you, the activism is exhausting. 
And maybe you're going through this for the same reasons that some of the others of us in here are going through that apathy, is you are disconnected from who you are. You are disconnected from who God made you to be, who he's calling you to be, who his spirit through you wants you to be. And so you are constantly trying to achieve anything that feels close to an identity. Jesus embodies, and not just embodies, but invites us to find neither this disconnected asceticism nor a codependent activism in our lives, but a rhythm of renewal where we pull away on a regular basis to receive, to re-engage the Father, to give so that we can give and serve. That we can say like Jesus, I know who I am. I know my priorities. I know what God has called me to do. I know who God says I am. the center of this rhythm of renewal at the practice of silence and solitude is the, the, the good news for you and me that the identity and the life and the vision for yourself and who you are is not something that you achieve but something that you receive. So much of your exhaustion or apathy is due to you thinking that you have to go out and get who you are. You have to go out and find and make a case for your own existence, a justification for your life as you would. And so you're running after thing after thing and this practice of silence and solitude is simply a way where not just in mouth you say I'm saved by grace but literally in your butt being in a chair and your mouth being quiet and yourself being alone, you're, you're separating yourself from you being what you say, from you being what you do or you being what your relationships are. And simply being just you, beloved by God through the person of Jesus Christ. And you just go, this is me. And the reality is, is that's what empowers you to move out into your life with a sense of conviction. That I don't need to achieve. I don't need to go after and be everything. I know exactly who I am in the presence of God. All of it is grace. All of it is a gift. It is something given to us if we would only stop running around for a few minutes to receive it. It's true of salvation. It's true of forgiveness. It's true of your identity. It's true of conviction within your heart, of moving in a new direction, of renewal, that it can only ever be received. It cannot be achieved. The great lie and danger of this age is that you should go out and discover who you are. That there's this little you that was like locked away in this little cage when you were a kid. And so you've got to go out there and find the key and bring your inner child out and, and express your identity and the person that you are. And so, and, and the thing is that whenever culture says that, it immediately follows it with something it wants to sell you. So this is the person that you are, so go to Burning Man. This is the person you are, so, so buy a car that you can't afford. This is the person that you always meant to be, so go to Star Wars, you know, more times than you should. Like Star Wars Land, Galaxy's Edge. I'm just, I'm airing my temptations here, okay? <laughs> if I can't do this, no one can. Um, I, the practice of silence and solitude is so needed in our day and age. Because it is a moment where, I mean, like even when I try to practice at home, there's airplanes going over and like, you know, I live by a, a four-way stop and no one can agree on who gets to go first. So even this morning at like six in the morning, I'm there like trying to like prepare for the day. It's like somebody honking on the horn at somebody else. Like in a city like Los Angeles where relationships, you are who you're connected to. For you to sit in a chair and realize I'm still a valuable human being without knowing anybody important or being anybody important. 
one of the greatest missional movements of people coming and saying, hey, this Jesus guy seems interesting, is when they meet Christians who don't have the same ambient anxiety as everybody else, when they're not running after the same silly things as everyone else. And it's available to us in Jesus. And for some of us here, we have seen Jesus, we've been saved by him, but the question is, is maybe the camera hasn't been as focused as it can be. And so that's the invitation for these next three weeks is to find this renewal. To find the identity that is given to you, not because of you have achieved it, but given to you through the work of Jesus Christ. And that somehow when we enter into silence and solitude, it's almost like a little mini death. We quit being for a little while and we find that even in this little mini death and even in our one day death, that there's life that's there for us because God is the one that meets us there.